Good morning. Welcome to Real Time with IPELRA, a podcast dedicated to HR topics in local government. I'm Megan Falera. And I'm Christina White. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, we are going to be talking about workmen's compensation and COVID-19, how this unprecedented global pandemic is affecting uh, claims in the workplace environment. Uh, before we get to our topic of the day, I want to let our listeners know uh, about some upcoming shows. Next week, Labor Day weekend, we have Ipelra's own Chris Randall returning. She was here for a while, and then she took a position down in Georgia, and she's going to be speaking with us about skills versus degrees, what you should look for in, in recruitment, whether um, you're looking for a specific degree or if someone might have the skills uh, that would suit the job without the degree. And then the following week, we have Jim Sotos speaking on qualified immunity. Uh, we had originally had a, a guest scheduled several weeks earlier, didn't work out. And we're very grateful that Jim is able to join us um, the week of the 13th. But today, we have Margot Ely with us. Margot is the executive director of IRMA, which is a risk management pool a lot of municipalities are members of. So, Margo, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. So to start off, tell us what IRMA is, what your role is, and, and what that's all about. So IRMA is an intergovernmental risk management pool. And so basically what we are is we're a nonprofit insurance company for 71 municipalities in northeastern Illinois. So on an annual basis, we handle around 2,000 cases or claims from all of our members, and we usually spend about $10 million a year on workers' compensation. So we spend a lot of time on workers' compensation cases. Wow. How long, um, how long have you been with that outfit? I've been with Irma for over six years now, and before that, I was a municipal attorney for about 20 years. Oh, wow. Oh, and which municipality were you with? Uh, the last one was the city of Naperville. I was their legal director. Okay. Wow. So that's a great, so the existence of Irma, how long has Irma been around? We are in our 41st year of existence and we were the first uh, risk pool in Illinois. That's fantastic. So um, a lot has changed this year uh, in terms of the virus, in terms of claims. I know um, several months ago when the governor set, issued his shelter in place and we were all kind of figuring out how to go forward, what was going on. I had received an email from our risk management attorney letting us know um, about the workers' compensation commission ruling. And since then, I know there's been some pivots, there's been some pullbacks and new issuance. Can you, can you start off, off by telling us about that ruling and, and give us a little history? Sure. So uh, in March, uh, only essential employees were working, right? And everybody else was working yeah. from home. And one of the questions that started coming up was, well, what if these employees who are working get COVID? And under the Workers' Compensation Act, if an employee uh, were to get COVID, they would have the burden of proving that they got it at work which is really difficult um, because you don't know necessarily where you got it. If you got it at the grocery store, you actually got it at work. And so right. um, 
the Workers' Compensation Commission passed an emergency rule on April 15th that created a rebuttable presumption for essential employees. So if they got COVID, it would be presumed that they got it at work because they were essential employees. But the problem was that the Workers' Compensation Commission didn't have the authority to basically change the law. So they have rulemaking authority, which means they can pass rules that implement laws, but they really can't change the law. And and very quickly after they passed the emergency rule, it was challenged in court. And on April 23rd, so just about one week after the rule was passed, a uh, court in Sangamon County granted a temporary restraining order finding that the commission did not have the authority to pass the pass the uh, rule to change the law. They said that it was an unlawful usurp of power that's reserved just for the legislature. And so thereafter then, in May, um, the legislature did pass a law that amended the Workers' Comp Act, and the governor signed it on June 5th. And it did create a rebuttable presumption for essential employees who contract COVID. Now, um, what the law provides now is that if you test positive for COVID, then it is presumed that you got it at work. But there are three ways that an employer rebuts that presumption. So the first way is that the employee was actually working from home or was on leave from employment for 14 consecutive days prior to their diagnosis. And another way is that you can the employer can show that the employee was actually exposed from an alternative source. And then really the strongest way to rebut it is that the employer was enforcing industry-specific sanitation, social distancing, and PPE. So what's really important for employers is that you enforce PPE uh, in accordance yeah. with guidance by the CDC and the IDPH. Agreed. Um, okay, so let's slow down here for a minute and go back. Um, an employee's on leave for 14 days. I don't have too many employees that are taking 14-day vacations right now. Um, a, there's no place to go. Uh, but is it 14 days? What if it's 10 days? 14 days. Yeah, it's 14 days. Is you know that's that's one way that you can rebut it is that if they if they're working from home, uh, right? You know, for 14 days prior, then obviously they didn't get it at work, and right. so. Um, yeah, but again, I mean, what we have really emphasized to all of our members is the importance of having a PPE policy in place mm-hmm. and enforcing it. And so what the law actually says is that the employers have to engage in and apply to the fullest extent possible or that they're enforcing it to the best of their ability, industry-specific guidelines issued by CDC and IDPH. So what's what's interesting is that, you know, the Workers' Comp Act is a no-fault law, right? So if you get hurt at work, it doesn't matter if it was actually your fault, the injury, that you were um, not being safe or, um, you know, it, it's it's no fault. Right, but right. But this, what this new rebuttal presumption law, though, provides is a little bit of fault because if right. the employer is enforcing PPE, but a particular employee decides not to wear a mask, then the employee who gets COVID may not have a compensable claim 
if they, as long as the employer was enforcing their policy and had a policy in place, then if the employee makes a bad choice, they may not have a compensable claim. Mm-hmm. So I'm envisioning, go ahead, go ahead, Christina. I was going to say, so when you're talking about a PPE policy, what we're really talking about is maintaining social distancing of at least six feet or wearing a face covering or mask if you can't maintain that six foot distancing and some of the other requirements of the CDC and the ID. PH, right? The Illinois Department of Public Health um, in terms of, of kind of those practices, I guess I shouldn't say, really say requirements, but really recommendations and practices for minimizing the spread of COVID. That's exactly right. And so you should also have workplace sanitation, um, you know, and like you said, the social distancing and the masks, but, um, you know, the all employers should have policies in place and their employees should be trained on those policies and mm-hmm. so that everybody understands what the expectations are. Okay. And that can include having signage up on, in the hallways and um, decals that say this is, you know, the six foot markings and um, other, you know, cleaning products and, and wipes and hand sanitizer and things like that being readily available. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also the barriers and the shields, you know, at, mm-hmm. at counters and things like that. And so I think most, I don't know of any um, of our members that aren't already complying with, with all mm-hmm. of those and, and have policies in place. We do have, um, we have 61 COVID claims in our office so far. And only one, wow. one employee was hospitalized out of, out of those 61 cases. And so um, that, that, I think that's good, you know. That, right. So, that- so while they established a rebuttable presumption, um, it really does put a shared responsibility on, on both the employer and the employee by, by having these um, sort of carve outs of saying, you know, we're going to assume that it is a workplace um, infection unless you can show the employer can show that you put these things in place and the employee just wasn't following those protocols. So there is some shared responsibility of doing, doing your part to help, you know, sort of stop the spread. And it's not just solely on the employer then to, um, to prove that you were out and about in a, at a party (laughs) somewhere where you got um, infected potentially. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, I mean, we investigate every claim that comes in and ask all all the right questions of both um, the employee and our member to, to determine if it is compensable. And, um, you know, what we have found is that the easy cases are the ones where you have like a firefighter or a police officer who had contact with somebody who they either a patient that they were transporting or somebody that they arrested that ended up being positive for COVID. Those are very clear, but it's, it's the other ones where you really don't know the source of the exposure mm-hmm. um, that is different. And so, you know, it's, it's just really important that all uh, municipalities are making sure that anybody who is coming into the office, they should really be completing a pre-screen questionnaire every day before they come in saying whether they have any symptoms or not. And if anybody has symptoms, they should go home because, you know, we don't, we know that the spread is real and that you have to be, you have to be really cautious. And so if somebody's not feeling good, they shouldn't be at work. So you mentioned police, and this is something that I think is kind of confusing out there. And if if I'm confused, I'd like to think that probably others are too. I I work a lot with uh, the FFCRA, Family First Coronavirus Act, where where we know that essential employees are exempt from that. 
How would that work um, in terms with this ruling? It seems like they're opposite. So I think FFCRA was really intended for that quarantine period after an exposure to give that employee the time off to be able to quarantine. Um, so I, it's, it's my understanding that municipalities could opt out for the FFCRA, right, for those first responders. And mm-hmm. um, the reason why that opt out was allowed is because of, if there was concerns about staffing for those uh, first responders. Um, the, the other thing that I think uh, should be noted is that the, the new rebuttable presumption law provides that if the employee had paid leave uh, while they're waiting for their test results, so whether you gave them FFCRA or you had some other sort of COVID leave that perhaps you were providing to them, even if they were using their own sick leave, the law says that, um, that the employer does not have to reimburse them for that time off right? With, with the payment of TTD, which is temporary total disability payments. So when you have a worker's comp injury that's compensable or condition, you're entitled to your time off paid, and that's called TTD. And what this says is that, you know what, it, once the employee tests positive, they don't get that time that they used up until that positive test. They don't get that reimbursed by TTD. Okay. So for, for police then, if they have a sore throat, they're having these things, they need to use their own time, they stay home. It's when they get a positive test that then it kicks in, that that would be compensable. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the law, um, it, while it was signed on June 5th by the governor, it it purports to be retroactive to March 9th. Um, gotcha. that, that may end up being challenged, I would think, the ability to go retroactive for a law. Um, but it, yeah. it says that it goes back to March 9th and then it expires on December 31st. It also says that before June 15th, a diagnosis is sufficient for the rebuttable presumption. But after June 15th, the employee has to have a positive test. So it's interesting when you look at what the CDC has done in the last couple of weeks with respect to testing, where they're moving away from testing being you know, required to it being more symptom-based. But the Illinois law still requires you have to have a positive test if, if you uh, had the exposure or the sickness after June 15th. You have to have a positive COVID test for it to be compensable. Right. And the IDPH just recently released um, a statement basically saying um, we maintain that people should be getting tested. If you have symptoms or if you don't have symptoms but you think you were exposed because you can be asymptomatic and be spreading the virus. So there, there's a little bit of a... Uh, uh, maybe contention between the right now the CDC and, and IDPH and probably some of the other health authorities. So that'll be interesting because obviously this is this um, Workers' Compensation Act is basically reliant on following the recommendations of those health authorities. But if there's conflict, that makes it a little bit more challenging for employers, probably. Right. It definitely does. Yeah. If there's a conflict between the CDC and the IDPH, then what is the Workers' Comp Commission going to rely on is going to be a question. I have not seen a COVID case litigated yet at the commission Mm -hmm. where they've issued any kind of decisions, but I would anticipate that we would see um, some cases um, coming forward on, on, out of, you know, the interpretation of the new law 
and whether it could be retroactive and really with respect to the guidelines, all right, what were the applicable guidelines um, Mm -hmm. at the time of the exposure and was the employer complying with them? That's why we have encouraged our members to all have an actual policy that, you know, we can have as an exhibit if we end up having to litigate any kind of claim. We need, we need that policy in writing. We need the employees to have seen the policy and know that it's being complied with. Right. So just to go back a a quick second to something Megan brought up with the FFCRA and to clarify, while we as employers have the authority essentially to exempt certain positions from FFCRA, which is is a pay provision, right? As you pointed out, it's it's an ability to to be paid uh, for COVID related absences. Um, That doesn't really though impact whether or not it's compensable under workers' compensation, because I believe this covers not only um, first responder employees, but essentially any any essential employee um, or a, uh, an employee of an essential business. And I think government bodies have been deemed an essential business um, across the board. So essentially it covers everybody. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Sure. And, and it also, um, the way that the law reads is that those individuals that are employed by essential businesses um, who are required to encounter members of the general public. So if Mm -hmm. you have an employee who's coming into work and they just work in their office and they don't have to have any encounters with the general public, they may not be um, entitled to this presumption. And it also says that whether they, even if they're not required to encounter members of the general public, if they're in an employment location that has more than 15 employees. So that's another um, consideration. If you have a, you know, a building where there's only, where there's less than 15 employees, those employees may not be entitled to, to the presumption. Right. So would you recommend, Margo, that employers kind of uh, vet those things in advance of even getting a claim of, of sort of establishing whether they meet some of those criteria, so to speak. So again, an example of we may have individuals working in um, a, a department that is somewhat isolated from the rest of the building and we've put practices or policies in place that say you're not going to have in-person meetings and we're not going to have interaction and those folks have no interaction with the public Um, So therefore, the assumption is that it is very unlikely that they would be exposed at work. Um, Is there any value in sort of, I guess, drafting something or sort of calling that out in advance of even getting getting the claims and and understanding that that doesn't remove the requirement or the due diligence to still go through the process of a claim occurs of making sure that all of the policies and practices were being followed. But thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's smart, not only from the legal perspective of potentially defending claims, but quite honestly, from the public health perspective. I mean, if you can have people isolated um, and you have the space and you can have people working from home, um, that's the right thing to do to stop the spread and to also minimize the exposure that, you know, an employer can face from having an outbreak at work. I mean, if you have a lot of people working in a small area and somebody tests positive, you're going to have a whole lot of people having a quarantine. So, you know, when it comes to your first responder departments, it's really important that you don't have an outbreak where you lose an entire shift of employees because of an exposure and then they all need to quarantine. It, It really can be a burden, especially at those smaller municipalities. 
Margo, I think that's a beautiful segue to a story you told me before we recorded uh, about a, something that happened at a police department. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. So we had a uh, we had a police officer, a pregnant police officer who was working light duty, and she tested positive. And then we found out that her husband, who was also a police officer at the same department, also tested positive. Between the two of them, there were like 32 other employees who were exposed from working with these two employees. So you really have to be careful. And again, you know, even in that scenario that I'm talking about, while you have the exposure and you have the potential threat, uh, the potential. And then you have to quarantine everybody. Um, the, the point is, is that, you know, if it can be avoided and if you were already enforcing PPE, then people really shouldn't be getting it. If you've mm-hmm. got the PPE in place, you shouldn't be getting it. So, I mean, those first responders, you know, paramedics and firefighters that are transporting patients, it's really important that they're wearing full PPE on every call. Don't wait till you get to the call to decide if you should put the PPE on. Just assume every call is a COVID call and wear the mask and goggles and gloves and the gown um, to make sure that you're protected. I think that our firefighters are better protected than a lot of employees because they do have access to the full PPE. When they transport patients to hospitals, the hospitals are giving them a new you know, batch of PPE when they get to the hospital. So they, they are very well equipped. So what did that municipality do? I imagine 30 plus employees had to then quarantine. Did they have to call in auxiliary officers or how did they manage? You know, it's pretty good sized department. And so they were able to manage it. Um, but I mean, a lot of our smaller departments, if they had that happen, um, you know, they would probably have to reach to their neighboring municipalities to step in right. and give them assistance. Mutual aid, something like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. It would have to be mutual aid, I would think, would, would be the right way to do it. So, uh, A couple other things I want to touch on before, before we our time today. So you mentioned that uh, this, this, these provisions sunset at the end of the year. What are your thoughts on the extension of this ruling? What's your best guess on the future here? Oh, I think that if we're still in phase four, come December, Mm -hmm. I think the legislature will amend it again and make it go into 2021, probably until June or so, I would think. I mean, it's it's the right thing to do. You know, I mean, it's it's important that our employees feel that they have protections if they do get covid while they're working and that they get the benefits. And so it, it makes sense. The problem, of course, is always, all right, did you really get it at work or did you get it somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, I think that they will amend it and I think that they'll extend it if we're still without a vaccine. And for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with how work workers' compensation works, it's not only covering the cost of their medical bills and, and rehabilitation, it's also a portion or, or all of their salary, depending on their position. Can you give us uh, maybe a 30-second 101 and and how workers' compensation works? Oh, yeah, for sure. So if you have a work-related injury or illness, uh, you have a right to three things under the workers' comp act. First, you have a right to your time off when you can't work because of the illness or injury. You have a right to be paid during that time that you're unable to work, and that's called temporary total disability payments. Um, It provides that 
you get paid 66 and two thirds of your salary tax free. Now, first responders, so police and firefighters have um, additional benefits for time off that's called, um, that's under the Public Employee Disability Act, and mm-hmm. they get 100% of their pay tax-free while they're unable to work. So the first thing is you get your time off paid. Second thing is you get all of your medical care paid, so you don't have to pay any co-pays or any deductibles. It's 100% of your necessary medical treatment is paid. And the last thing is what we call PPD. So that's permanent partial disability. And so that is something that is what we would consider a settlement. So um, in those more serious cases where an employee may have needed surgery and then they may have some permanency that lingers after they're done treating and um, they, they may have some permanency. And so that's called PPD. And that's usually a lump sum settlement that um, you get paid and then the case is closed. And you said you've only had um, one COVID case where that person's been hospitalized. Have, and I'm imagining you haven't had any sort of settlement or anything, or maybe you have. We, no, we haven't had any settlements yet because in order to settle a workers' compensation case, the employee has to be totally done treating. So we call that MMI, maximum medical improvement. So mm-hmm. once an employee reaches MMI, then the case can be considered for settlement. So at this point, uh, we don't have um, the one case that was hospitalized, that employee is still treating and not okay. back to work yet. You mentioned the uh, Public Employees Disability Act. I had uh, received notification that the Illinois legislature has just issued extensions on that uh, act. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, that's right. I wrote an article for our e-news on that new law. And so basically what it does is, you know, so PETA provides um, police and firefighters with 52 weeks of benefits um, for an injury. And so, and that doesn't have to be taken consecutively, but they get paid a hundred percent of their salary tax free for 52 weeks. And so what the, what the legislature did was they, ex- they provided for the opportunity for employees to ask for an extension of PETA benefits for up to 60 days. Um, if the employee can show that their treatment was delayed because of COVID. And we know that in April and May, there were many medical providers that were closed down and that um, were not providing services. We saw delays in getting surgeries. We saw delays in getting physical therapy. And so that's something that all municipalities should just be aware of. It's the employee's obligation to request the extension. And then it's also the employee's obligation to show that their treatment was delayed because of COVID. Okay. Yes. I would say a lot of things have been delayed because of COVID. That's for sure. Christina, do you have any final thoughts or any questions for Margo? Um, not, I don't have any other follow-up questions. I'm just processing all of this information uh, because uh, I'm thinking about just the pay provisions we were talking about earlier. I know a lot of communities um, when this first started initiated their own additional paid time off provision so that if someone did get COVID or had to be self-quarantined, um, they wouldn't necessarily have to dip into their bank of sick time or their time off. Um, so I guess, Margo, I, uh, that just, just sparked a different question for me. So um, if that was the case where they were being paid, I know you said initially that they, um, they get paid through workers' comp if it's a, a, a compensable claim. 
Um, but I'm assuming that the obligation is not to pay them twice. In other words, if they were already getting paid under a paid time off provision that the employer instituted for COVID specific reasons, um, at what point does that workers' compensation uh, TTD kick in? You know, it kicks in once um, it's determined that it's compensable and it, mm-hmm. it kicks in um, once they have missed three days of work. So if, if an employee misses less than three days, then they're not entitled to TTD. Um, once they've missed three days, then the TTD should kick in and they should start being paid TTD. Okay. But if they were already getting paid um, by the employer, well, if they're already getting paid by the employer and it's under this rebuttable presumption, then they don't get that that paid leave back. You know what I mean? It, TTD doesn't go retro then. It's just okay. um, it's from the date uh, of the determination of it being compensable forward. But there isn't any reimbursement for the time that they had to take out of their sick leave or whatever prior to that. So in other okay. words, the employer gets credit for TTD for the time that they used before that. The employer gets credit, TTD That's credit for that. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of our listeners that that offered those very generous pay policies above and beyond what they were already doing um, in terms of regular paid time off, I think that's an important thing to, to make note of. Right. Agreed. And as, as always, um, obviously, um, you know, we always encourage our, our members and our listeners to... Um, check with their labor council, check with your workers' compensation uh, carriers or your, your insurance companies to make sure that you're following all of the requirements. Obviously, COVID has added another layer of complexity to um, areas that are already fairly complex with workers' comp and uh, PETA and all of the others. So um, that's always something that if you have a situation and you're not exactly sure how to handle it or whether or not it's compensable, uh, make sure you check in with your resources and get those questions answered. Yep, for sure. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, Christina, I have a question for you. And as I'm thinking about this, um, obviously the best, the best course of action is to have a policy on, um, taking temperatures, wearing PPE, um, reminding and encouraging employees to continue to follow this practice. How do you, what do you do when you have employees that have kind of become exhausted from this. They're now getting lazy, forgetting to wear their mask, or are just kind of sick of it altogether. I know we have to gently remind them, have you or are you aware of any other municipalities that are issuing discipline or or how are they addressing and continuing to keep this um, policy front and center? Yeah, I'm not exactly or specifically aware of anyone issuing discipline, but I think it follows any other policy or practice you have in your organization. You always start out with a, um, I think, a reminder to the employee to make sure they're following the policies and practices. But there gets to be a point where um, if someone is willfully disobeying those policies or continuously forgets to follow the policy, there, there does come a point in time, I think, where you have to go the route of um, the progressive discipline um, and it, I think it's incumbent on supervisors and managers to really continue to remind, encourage, and enforce the policy like they would any other city policy that we have for the safety of the employee, right? So we have tons of policies in place, even pre-COVID and outside of COVID, to make sure that people don't get hurt on, at, at work or to try to prevent or mitigate the risk of being hurt at work uh, for a variety of reasons, mainly because we want to make sure our employees are safe and that they're not right. missing away from work or get injured and have to be hospitalized or 
um, you know, any of those things. So I think it follows the same structure of, of reinforcing those policies, but it is a challenge. I think this has been going on now for a long time. I think um, most of us thought when COVID first really started and we all sheltered in place and, and kind of shut down in those early months of March and April, um, I think everyone believed it was going to be a really short-term inconvenience and we would have these spikes and then um, get back to some level of normalcy. And that really hasn't happened. It's been sort of a prolonged process. And I do think human nature, people get frustrated um, and uh, the longer things go on and there's debates about what is happening and should we be wearing masks, shouldn't we be wearing masks? Um, you know, is this as, as serious as, as people say it is? And, you know, certainly we can get into all of those debates, but um, I think human nature is going to lend itself to people sort of feeling like they don't have to follow it. But again, um, what everyone does in their personal lives is their choice. But at work, the, I think the employer does have a right to require employees to follow our policies. And if, as Margot pointed out, if you have a written policy that says this is what we're doing, then you do also have the authority at that point to require and force those policies. Well said, well said. Well, well, that is all the time we have for our show today. I want to thank Margot Ely for joining us. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, Margot, or if they'd like more information on Irma or this topic, how can you be reached? Sure. You know what? The best is my email, which is margoe at irmarisk.org. Okay. And I'll put a link to that in the uh, body of our podcast. And if any of our listeners have anything they want to say, remember, we're here. Send us a recorded voice message we can play, uh, email Christina or I, join us on a future podcast. Connect with us through the website at www.ipelra.org and, of course, on Twitter at I-P-E-L-R-A. Support IPELRA by becoming a member. We are dedicated to providing training and resources to HR and labor professionals and local government. And most importantly, stay safe. This is a difficult time. Make sure you're taking care of yourself, um, taking time out for yourselves, and just, just being safe overall. Join us next time with Chris Randall while we discuss uh, skills versus degrees. I'm Megan Falera. And I'm Christina White. And this has been Real Time with IPELRA. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.